Well, I've been asked to talk about the cradle of Western culture, which does sound a bit uh, scary, as if Western culture were rocking, which I hope it isn't. But I've been asked to speak, I suppose, because I have been cruise lecturer on several Oxford Society cruises for alumni. And these cruises go around the western or southern coasts of what is now Turkey and visit some of the Greek islands in the Aegean. And you will all be recalling the words of the poet Byron, the Isles of Greece, the Isles of Greece, cried his lordship. Eternal summer gilds them yet, but all except their sun is set. Well, he, of course, was not anticipating popular tourism and alumni cruises to the Mediterranean. It was there, Byron went on to say, that burning Sappho loved and sung. Well, we know a lot more about Sappho than anybody did in Byron's day, thanks to new discoveries on papyrus and excellent work by modern scholars. And a lot of it turns out to be quite different from what we had expected, as is often the case when these irritating fragments turn up and everybody has to tear up their lectures and write new ones. <laughs> but we still possess only tantalizing fragments of her poems, just enough to see that her high reputation in the ancient world was fairly won. Now, am I audible? Yes. Right, thank you. The islands of the Aegean are characteristically rocky outcrops. They're the high points of a mountain range long ago submerged by the sea. They spring into historic prominence with the sudden arrival of the culture which we have come to call Minoan. The opulent and aesthetic civilization, which centered on the great island of Crete and colonized many of the islands and flourished in the second millennium BC, which was destroyed, whether by invasion or by volcanic action or by both, sometime about 1300 BC, after which running water in the bathroom was a vain dream for the next 1800 years leaving behind strange and sinister legends about King Minos and his kinky wife, Parsifae, and funny stuff with a bull and their offspring, the monstrous Minotaur, half bull, half man, who was hidden from men's sight in the deadly labyrinth. The labyrinth presumably reflects the incomprehension of later people, not used to great big buildings, about huge buildings with corridors and lots of rooms. It was a real maze in there and something terrible at the heart of it. There the Minotaur fed on human victims until one day a young Athenian prince marked for death in that fearful maze won the love of the princess Ariadne if indeed she was a mortal woman and not as some suppose a fertility goddess and he killed the Minotaur and ran away with her and abandoned her on another island. So it's a very moral story for daughters, really. Listen to Daddy. However, <laughs> however unattractive in some ways he may seem to be. But there, again, takes a fresh turn. She was found and taken up as a consort of the god Dionysus. And her crown is in the skies to this day to witness the truth of what I'm saying and can be shining, seen shining among the stars of heaven to this day or to this night anyway. Moral, young ladies can't be too careful. So much for value-free education. Education bristles with values and wisdom and other important things. Now the striking facts about the Greek islands are I think principally, the most striking facts are 
two in number. One is that they are very sunny. There's a great deal of sun, to put it another way, uh, with which native touristic asset I include the dark blue sea, the pale leaves of the olive trees, so exotic and un-English, the bright gleam here and there of cut marble, the excitement of coming upon the fallen pillars of a long-ruined temple, suggestively picturesque, which invite the guest lecturer to give a short extempore address to those passengers who have not forestalled him by diving into the sea, so tempting and inviting and ever-present, or perhaps in some bar or temptingly handy cafe neon. And some of his audience, it may be, will be dreaming all through his learned and well-phrased remarks of olives and lucums. Never call them Turkish delight in a Greek town. It doesn't go at all well. And honey and yogurt and cool draughts of the native wine, resonated or not resonated according to taste. Some Helenophiles get at least to say that they like resonated wine, but most tourists do not like it and have been heard to say that if they wanted cough mixture, they would have brought some with them. <laughs> the other thing which calls for mention, perhaps, is that these little islands produce some great figures. Sappho, the poetess, and her contemporary and rival, and of course, according to ancient gossip, her lover, Alcaeus, on the island of Lesbos. Pythagoras, who combined, as so many mathematicians do, an interest in maths with an interest in mysticism, on the island of Samos. Simonides, lyric poet, writer of unmatched verse epitaphs and inventor of the first Strengthen Your Memory course, which we know of in history, on the tiny island of, it's a tricky bit, Chios, K-E-O-S, not to be confused with the large island of Chios, with a Chi, C-H-I-O-S, which of course is the traditional home of Homer himself. And you'll be pleased to hear that the tourist authorities on Chios can show you Homer's own plane tree, beneath which 3,000 years ago he used to sit and sing. It's lovingly maintained and regularly re replaced. <laughs> uh, no fools, these Chios. Chios also has a particularly delicious kind of ouzo. For the Aegean really is a beautiful sea, both bluer and warmer, than the bracing cold and the manly battleship grey, which we admire in our own dear North Sea, and a good deal more inviting for most of us, let's face it, for a dip. The one memorable word in the collected works of Xenophon, 4th century BC, is on every educated tourist's lips, Thalassa, Thalassa, the sea, the sea, what the Greeks said after mercenaries stranded in the middle of Persia when their patron foolishly got killed in battle and there was nothing for it but to march home, finally reached the Black Sea and knew they were going to make it. The Greek air and the special Greek light too, I'm sorry we can't import them here, but apparently that isn't possible. Uh, the themes of so many tiresome Victorian and Edwardian rhapsodies, of course like all those people, great place to go for indulging in uh, pederastic romances. All different now, however. But the Greek air and the Greek light are different. Things are clearer, less misty, 
more intense than our light at home. This is a watercolour country. That is not really what Greece makes you feel like doing, possibly getting to work with a chisel on a big lump of Parian marble. The sun shines seriously. No beating about the bush, no half measures for Phoebus Apollo, sun god, on those Aegean shores. Throwing off all false modesty, or indeed genuine modesty, or inhibition, he assumes his true splendor and shines as if he meant it. So, only Englishmen, as they say in those parts, go out in the midday sun. Except, of course, the Greeks actually express this by saying, if you go out in the midday, you may meet the midday demon. And then it will be, you wish you'd stayed at home. Uh, so, Mediterranean people do not go out at the midday. Take a little siesta and possibly another glass of wine. In that light, the natural form of painting is not the watercolour, restrained and delicate, of the British amateur, somehow always faintly suggestive of the vicar's unmarried sister, or perhaps of his delicate but gifted aunt. But here, well, one may muse, the land of the muses, if one had been born there two and a half thousand years ago in that clear and brilliant light, not in these late days, beneath the cloudy skies of the north, one might oneself have been a pioneer in seeing and understanding some unsuspected truth about geometry, drawing the diagram in the sun-baked sand for one's pupils, who all have perfect Grecian profiles, as one toyed, no harm in dreaming, with the tangles of Neaera's hair. And remember that Plato, who said a lot of crazy things, such as that uh, women were the same as men and the physical world didn't exist and things of that kind, said that women could be taught to do geometry. What a lunatic, said everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Let's return to today's business, a little closer to it anyway, and that headiest, perhaps, of all mixtures, an Oxford group, men and women, roaming the classic shores where breaks the blue Ionian Sea. In particular, let's think about visiting Turkey, which in classic times was generally called Anatolia. Anatolia means sunrise land. It's where the sun comes up in Greek. That is the east. We call it from Latin on the whole the Orient. It means the same thing, the sunrise. That is the east as seen from the viewpoint of Greece, not from the viewpoint, of course, of India or Japan, from which the Middle East is the Midwest, I suppose, different as that somehow sounds. Uh, all the arts and all civilization in Europe, practically, comes at first from the East. Even that of the Greeks and Romans is indebted ultimately to their Eastern origins. Thence indeed comes the kick start to our Western culture, mediated and reaching us through the high cultures of Greece and Rome. Those are the origins, intellectually, of us all. Of the, and of, with of that other interesting Mediterranean people, between whom and the Greeks, once they met, very little love was lost, the Hebrews. Everything comes to the Mediterranean one way or another. It might, of course, all have been quite different. But we live too far west for much direct, or any direct and early contact with the high cultures of India and China which might perhaps, had geography been different, have been our starting point, fons et origo, as we old greats people say. Our whole story could have been quite different from what it turned out to be. 
As for the cultures of the New World, the Mexico of the Aztecs and the Peru of the Incas, they, as far as our ancestors were concerned, might as well have been on another planet. They really might as well not have bothered to have their culture at all when you come to think of it. So at least we were spared human sacrifice on that industrial scale, local speciality. Now, Anatolia, Sunrise Land, is not an exact geographical term. It comprises roughly the lands which stretch from the Mediterranean in the west to the river Euphrates and the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia in the east, and from the Euxine, welcoming to strangers, a euphemistic name for that sea, the Black Sea, as we now call it, in the north, to the deserts of Syria in the south. The term is now, and to Egypt, uh, the term is now mostly applied to Turkey and especially to its western upland plateau. This area was the home of important and very early pre-Greek cultures, including Satalhuyuk, I think that's how you pronounce it, which was Neolithic, quasi-urban, already traffic problems apparently, perhaps dating from as early as 7000 BC. And there are fascinating remains in some of the Turkish museums, very well worth seeing, and indeed in other museums in the Western world. How procured, we need not necessarily inquire. Later in the second millennium BC, really coming right up to date, there are the Hittites. And we all remember Uriah the Hittite, who was a mercenary soldier serving King David, most treacherously treated by that intemperate oriental monarch, husband of the fair Bathsheba. Those who cruise with us can visit some notable Hittite remains, because they were great carvers in stone. And if you want posterity to know about you, the distant future, carving in stone is the thing to do. It really does stay. Carving in wood, not nearly so good. After a few hundred years, it's gone. Literature, very chancy indeed. You may hit strike lucky, but most literatures are pretty well perished. But great big things in stone, ideally, of course, a pyramid, so huge that generations of looters have not been able to do much to it, stays there forever. They were great carvers in stone and great imaginers of spirits who were half human, half beast, or half bird. Wonderful carvings of great big figures, about one and a half times as tall as me, with birds' heads, and you're generally standing in this sort of posture. That was the posture you stood in if you were a Hittite, apparently. And also one leg in front of the other, so as to show both calf muscles to perfection. Their language of the Hittites was an Indo-European one, you'll be gratified to know, and in the 20th century it has been triumphantly deciphered. We can read what we've got from them. We have not perhaps discovered a Hittite Homer or Aeschylus or Plato, but what we have comes in very handy for lectures in the Oxford Special Subject on Indo-European Philology. Mostly lists of things in temples and that kind of stuff. Very interesting if you have that sort of taste. <laughs> One lecture I'm going to about um, uh, Linear B, lists of things in temples, six chariots, four of them broken. <laughs> <laughs> Very pedantic people, apparently, the Minoans. We are here at the far outer edge of the Greek world, which was never completely Hellenized. It has a very different terrain from that is familiar in Hellas. Its wide grassy savannas are a far cry from the steep mountain slopes and tiny fertile plains 
of mainland Greece. And they made, of course, for bigger units of population. Empires, not just single cities, could spring up here. The Greeks, by contrast, regarded the city-state as the ideal, and so as the natural size. Only in Renaissance Italy, and perhaps in the Hansa League, shall we find a similar setup, accompanied in Italy, perhaps not through mere coincidence, by the only comparable flowering of literature and all the arts. Effective use is made on this sort of terrain in Western Asia of the war chariot, which needs flat ground. It's a fearsome weapon in the right setting, especially if you have knives on the wheels. Very rarely usable on the terrain of Greece, which is much too hilly, rocky, and bumpy. You don't get very far in a war chariot uh, on Greece. And that's why Homer doesn't understand about chariots. There are plenty of them in the Iliad, but Homer doesn't understand really what they're for. He's seen them in pictures and carvings, but he imagines them really serving as kind of taxis to ferry heroes in and out of battle. But once you get into battle, you get out of your, t out of your chariot and start fighting. And you only get back in it at the end of the day or when you're wounded. Clearly, that is not realistic. Here, let me warmly recommend, and this is perhaps a self-indulgent aside, but why not? It is Saturday. Let me recommend a visit someday to the British Museum where you can see the wonderful representations carved on a large series of stone slabs of the war chariots of Assyrian kings in action. The king is mostly shown shooting lions from his chariot with the bow and finishing them off hand-to-hand -hand with the spear. That was a dangerous sport, a pastime worthy of a real king, and it had its symbolic aspects too. The king is defeating and warding off from his people the attacks of supernatural enemies presented by the lions. At that time, lions were endemic on the upland plains of Anatolia, but they were exterminated, it seems, by that kingly sport. There are no lions there now, and I suppose consequently no kings either. They've all gone. Here I insert a short excursus on ancient religion, a very large subject which can't be exhausted in one lecture, still less in a paragraph or two. On a cruise, one could have conversations about it at any time, whether at breakfast or at dinner. And some familiarity with that religion, though not profound learning, is, I think, quite an advantage if you're not to be puzzled by some prominent aspects of ancient art and archaeology, because it is very different from Western religion nowadays. And it's a fact that a lot of what survives on stone comes from sacred structures, temples, statues of deities, shrines, and so on. Fortunately, more or less everybody knows a bit about the gods of Greece, even before setting foot on the boat. If you'd like it, I could talk about it at great length on some other occasion or occasions. It is a very interesting subject. Now, the Greeks and Romans, like the peoples of Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, India, and everywhere else, practiced, as you know, a polytheistic religion, a varied pantheon of divine persons, some male, some female, some imagined as older, bearded, some as younger, each with special interests and particular character. That seemed to early people to be what must lie behind the natural and the human world in which they found themselves living. They must be reflected in the world which they controlled and which they explained. The Greeks, unlike notably the people of India, generally and explicitly rejected any gods who were not fully human in form. No divine monkeys, no sacred crocodiles, as in India, in Egypt, no elephant-headed gods, as in India, for the Greeks. They viewed the animal deities of Egypt with amusement 
or with scorn. The decisive fact about Greek religion from our point of view is its emphasis and concentration on the aesthetic rather than the moral, on beauty as a central attribute of the gods. Greek gods are in fact by no means uniformly remarkable for what we might call moral excellence, especially in matters of sex. Here Zeus led the way with his countless amours and his numberless offspring. Well, that, of course, is in part a reflection of the self-aggrandizement and pride of aristocratic families and of ambitious communities who love to trace their own lineage or origin back to a union between some ancestress, is that a word? Female ancestor, generally a mere name of whom nothing else was known, whose beauty caught the eye of a randy god. Usually, of course, the eye was that of Zeus. Naming him as one's progenitor didn't cost any more than naming Hermes or Apollo, and it was the tops. After all, just imagine, if you yourself were the real boss, accountable to nobody, long-hardened to the complaints of a resentful but impotent wife, what use would you make of your enormous opportunities? But by and by, leaving that question on one side, with the growth of reflection and of more abstract thought, these carefree escapades were to do the Greek gods, and Zeus in particular, enormous harm. First the Greek philosophers, starting in the 6th century BC, then the poets, notably the tragic poets of Athens in the 5th century BC, and finally and triumphantly the Christians, all hammered home the unseemliness, the unacceptableness of God's behaving in that sexy, louche, and immoral way. Now Zeus, of course, did have other functions and other interests besides that of impregnating heroes and the founders of dynasties. Some of those functions will no doubt come up in the course of a cruise, but the aura and the taint of the omnipotent Lothario never ceased to cling to him and to damage his moral standing. Zeus could not be imagined as actually being any kind of father towards the offspring of all those mythical ladies, so they must have been abandoned, often rejected by their mortal fathers too, who on the whole didn't believe it when the young lady said, well, the father is Zeus, daddy. Oh, yes, said father. Uh, the poor women had to undergo persecutions and sufferings before the birth of some marvelous child. We have to come to some sort of terms with the fact of polytheism, which has been rather out of fashion in the West for a good many centuries. In the words of a Balliol poet, Arthur Hugh Clough, in his new Decalogue, thou shalt have one god only, who would be at the expense of two? No doubt polytheism appeared in the world earlier than monotheism, which is a late and rarish plant in religious history. True monotheism is, I suppose, the great contribution to the world of the Hebrews, though the Zoroastrians of Iran had reached a morally-based dualism, Ahura Mazda versus Ahriman by the 6th century BC, and I seem to hear a murmur somewhere at the back of the name of the heretical monotheist pharaoh still earlier, Achenaton. The chosen people of Yahweh themselves, as we read again and again in the Old Testament, were constantly being tempted and constantly backsliding with disastrous results into the worship of the various gods and goddesses, the Baalim and the Ashtarot, of the various pagan peoples who surrounded them and who sometimes impressed them and sometimes even conquered them. The prophetic books of the Old Testament 
teem with eloquent denunciations of backslidings by the chosen people into those seductive religious conceptions and practices which were never far away, into the worship of Dagon and Baal and of Ishtar, the Queen of Heaven. I cannot resist observing here that it was an extraordinary and wholly exceptional innovation by the Hebrews to insist that the divine, in addition to being only one and not many, was also male and not female. That double insistence is carried on almost more strikingly by the Christians, who proclaim that remarkable tour de force, in historic terms, a divine trinity of three persons, none of whom is a member of the female sex most unusual in terms of the history of religion. I mustn't go on about that. To most people, it seemed obvious that the world and that human life showed vital signs of being at the mercy of powerful beings, more or less inscrutable, but in important respects like us, who were invisible but everywhere active. Like us, doubtless, some were male and some were female. Like us, doubtless, they had their sexual unions and their pregnancies and their offspring. The goodwill of these gods was vital to the community and to the individual, and it was possible to win it. Their anger was terrible. It was possible to avert or to appease it. Since the earth itself is clearly a mother, into whose fertile womb the seed is cast, and from whom the crops are every year reborn into new life, the great and vital area of fertility, of childbirth, and of agriculture naturally suggested the existence and the power of a great goddess, and all of that was in her department. Anxiously, people reflected, we are her children. Surely then she must be a loving mother to us, mustn't she? But her favor is evidently insecure. Crops fail, children sicken and die, the whole community may starve. It was thus obvious that the goodwill or even better, the affection of such a goddess was vitally worth securing and retaining by whatever means suggested themselves to the imagination and the inventiveness of the tribe. Another thought occurred to them. Clearly, the vital power of nature was in some way akin to human and animal sexuality. So in some places, and even we read at the end of the 19th century in parts of Eastern Europe, it was the custom, when the corn had been sown, for the farmer and his wife to go out and make love in the ploughed cornfield. It just might help on the mysterious, life-working powers and processes of nature, and clearly it would be foolish to risk it this year and omit it. Another goddess, different in character, presumably had charge and care of the animals which were hunted. Sometimes the woods were full of game. At other times, the hunters returned, at the end of the day, empty-handed. There was no game to be found. That might mean starvation for some or all of the community. So why? Why had it happened? Why was the game not there to be found? Surely because some, the great mother figure to whom these creatures belong has chosen to withhold them from us. And why was that? The question was terrible and urgent. For some reason, she is angry with us. Somehow then, her anger must be appeased. Then she will again permit us to catch her creatures whom we need for our own livelihood. Any explanation, in fact, was better than a blank and inexplicable nothing, than being forced on so vital a theme to say, 
No, we simply have no idea why today there were no deer or no fish or no birds. And there's no way we can influence them or bring them back. Rituals were needed and invented to mollify whatever supernatural force, presumably more or less human in its emotions and desires, could choose to give or to deny us the game which we needed to catch if we were not to perish. Some people knew the formulas and the rituals, the gestures and the gifts, which appeased the anger and assured the goodwill of those very important invisible beings in whose control it lay to decide things so vital to the health or even the continued existence of our community. Would the men of the village out hunting in the woods return in the evening empty-handed, or would they be loaded with game? Would the crops which were cultivated for the community by the women come up and be fruitful, or would some mysterious force somehow nip and blast them before the harvest they bore was ripe? The women too, it was obvious, must be subject to rituals and procedures which would keep them pure and unobjectionable to whatever powers it was who made the crops grow or who could blast their growth. Another question was no less urgent. What of our domesticated animals, our sheep and goats and cattle? Will they thrive and multiply this year, or will they sicken and perish, as they sometimes do, bearing no offspring and yielding no milk? What of that still more poignant and awesome but related question, the fertility of our women themselves, that deeply mysterious but absolutely vital matter? How can we protect it against the unseen but damaging forces that menace it and which somehow ensure that while some acts of intercourse lead to a pregnancy and a birth, others, bafflingly, do not? In a word, shall our community live or must it perish? Some days the hunters caught nothing. The woods were empty, the game wasn't there. They came home to their disappointed womenfolk, disheartened and empty-handed. Some year the crops did not come up, or they were blighted, or they bore only a fraction of the vitally needed harvest. Domestic animals, too, were at the mercy of unpredictable and sometimes disastrous plagues and infertilities. Why? There must be some reason for these inflictions and these sufferings. We human creatures find it impossible to live in mere blank uncertainty and helplessness. Any explanation even an alarming one, is better than that. It's vital, then, that we find a cause, however dark, and that we do something about it. However irrational what we may do may appear to another tribe with different procedures or to the enlightened views of a later generation such as ours. In each case, men had to press the urgent question, what have we done wrong to produce this disastrous result? Is it all of us who are at fault, or only one or two individuals? And in that case, we can already make a pretty good guess who they might be, who are guilty of some offense, some transgression, conscious or unconscious, which has made our gods turn away in anger and leave us, their people, to starve. Yes, of course. Now that the question is asked, there are indeed among us a few unpopular or eccentric or sinister individuals, and we know where they live. There, for instance, in the ship with us is Jonah, overboard with him. Or perhaps it is that odd and isolated old woman, unloved and unloving, who muttered something malignant to herself as I passed her, just two days before my best cow fell sick and died. Wicked old witch. 
All this led, as human societies grew larger and richer, to rituals, to the formulaic prayers and spells, to sacred groves in which gods were at home and in which it was forbidden to set foot. By and by to temples, those petrified forests with their columns, and to altars built of stone, and to vestments woven of silk, and to sacrifices, vegetable and animal. Not least, sometimes it led to the supreme oblation, that of human sacrifice, when we are truly desperate, when we are in really urgent need, and when we must show the god, or the goddess, or the gods, that we will withhold nothing, not even human life. We will not spare even our own children, if that is what Moloch demands. But perhaps, with a bit of luck, the god will be satisfied with the offering of a captured foreigner, or some unproductive or unpopular individual from among ourselves. With what relief and with what enthusiasm do we hear that the designated victim this time is not from our close family? Somebody else is for the chop or for the fire. Every human group, every society, developed its own deities, its own special guardians and patrons, who naturally needed wives or husbands, and who produced children and developed their own biographies with their victories and withdrawals, with actions of grace and generosity, alternating perhaps with acts of chastisement and terror. Those inflictions are justified, we humbly confess, they are rightly inflicted to punish all our too numerous sins and wickednesses, our transgressions and our omissions. In the case of the Hebrews, it seems that at first they went no further than the assertion, not in itself so unusual, that their tribal god was greater and stronger than any other community's god. We hear them say in the Psalms, for the Lord is a great god and a great king above all gods, and so on. Later on, they took the historic and momentous step of saying that he was actually the only god. The others were not gods at all. In fact, they didn't exist. Eyes have they and see not, ears have they and hear not, neither speak they through their throat. And that was the assertion that so antagonized and enraged their pagan neighbors. Generally, gods were imagined as being essentially like us, only more so. They were stronger and bigger, of course, and free from our sad subjection to age and death, but divided into the same two sexes as we observe in both the animal and the human species. Gods had naturally the same moods, the same passions, and the same kind of relationships, including sexual ones. That meant that the gods of the heathen, like Zeus of Olympus, went in for marriage, adultery, gallantry, jealousy, irregular offspring, and all the rest of the sexual and emotional switchback life which is familiar to us mortals. But the whole conception had a striking and unexpected drawback. The worshippers, having devised their gods, inevitably became involved with them emotionally. They would fight in the defense of their gods if they were insulted or denied. They contrasted them with the alleged deities, inferior and hateful, of hostile groups. Religious animosities were born, and within the group, too, there were often those who had slighted our gods, or who were, for one reason or another, the object of divine anger and rejection. Spectacular punishment for them would surely be the best way to show the gods that we had no part in their sins, that on the contrary, we were the loyal and virtuous defenders of the faith and of the vital procedures which guaranteed the well-being and prosperity of us all. 
Gods supported our society against outsiders. They were no less useful in maintaining order and hierarchy within it. There is no power we read in St. Paul, but it comes of God. And royal and aristocratic families, naturally, love to insist that their own distinguished genealogy, unlike, of course, those of lesser plebeian people, went back to a god, or more rarely, to a goddess. That is intercourse between a divine creature and one of my ancestors. And that ultimately is the root of my superiority. And as it costs no more to claim Sib with Zeus than with some lesser and tributary divinity, with Hermes, say, or even Apollo, Father Zeus found himself the progenitor of many royal families and of many noble clans. Well, how exactly, you ask, did that divine descent come about? How is it that I am descended from that superhuman origin while you are not? Why, the lusty god, inexhaustible, of course, in his potency, ever on the lookout for an attractive partner and always in the mood for love, spotted a pretty girl one day, my ancestress, let me tell you. He swooped, he made her pregnant, and that is how my family is different from you and all those other families over there. We go back to an ancestral god. Coming over with William the Conqueror, by comparison, is, in the words of Bertie Worcester, as piffle before the wind. <laughs> in Homer, it is a regular and formulaic courtesy to address a king as son of, whatever his father's name was, sprung from Zeus. Thus, Odysseus, courteously addressed as son of Laertes, sprung from Zeus. Diogenes, Laertia Dei, Odysseus of the many schemes. Diogenes, Diogenes, born of Zeus, a proud title, long before it was associated with the godforsaken and unwashed philosopher, the dweller in an old barrel, the man who thought himself the equal of Alexander the Great, Diogenes the dog, the cynic. The claim of later aristocracies to the possession of blue blood is a mere pale shadow of that gratifying and tremendous assertion. It turned out, however, by an unexpected turn, to be in the long run a disaster for the gods. What kind of way is that, people began to ask, for a god to behave? Not even seduction, mere rape seemed to be the pattern. Because, of course, the origin and point of these stories was not any romantic or even prurient imagination, but the mere assertion of superiority and family pride. You ask why I'm superior to you? It's because my family descends from a god. We have the divine descent, old boy, and you do not. That was all very well, perhaps, in the early period, but very soon, people began to protest, to ask what sort of way that was, really, for self-respecting deities to behave. What a bad example to set. And how did the lady feel about it? Why, if we mortals did that kind of thing, it would be highly culpable. So what about these gods, who, by our own admission, are a set of adulterers and, indeed, rapists? Reflective men very soon began to see, certainly by 500 BC, that the growth of such stories, rank and uncontrolled, was squeezing the life out of the gods themselves. High-minded people could not go on accepting these scandalous tales of the casual amours, rapes, desertions, and illegitimate offspring of the gods. We mortals, after all, have accepted that we mustn't carry on in that bawdy, knockabout spirit. How come the gods, apparently, both can and do? It became an urgent question among the serious-minded.
Could the Olympian gods be set free from the myths which showed them in such a morally damaging light? And the answer, it turned out, despite the efforts of Plato to deliver the gods from the myths and to banish such stories from his ideal city altogether, Plato, of course, invented a complete set of new myths, all of which were absolutely politically correct and carefully scrutinized by him. It turned out that the myths were too strong, too attractive, too well-known, too much fun, and too intimately connected with the gods to be ousted or discredited. But in fact, of course, Plato was right. Such stories, repeated and elaborated in so many works of high poetry and drama, and also in comic poetry and prose, did indeed play a powerful role in the discrediting of the pagan deities themselves, and in clearing the stage for the new religion of Christianity, a faith with only one god who certainly did not spend his time either on seduction or on rape. Christian emphasis on the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Birth is perhaps not unconnected with nervousness about this traditional and reprobate mythical pattern. Some of the religious sites in Greek Asia Minor show syncretistic attempts to come to terms with, to accommodate other deities. Not Greek, but not wholly unacceptable to fastidious Greek taste, either by identifying them with some deity already familiar and worshipped, or by establishing a wholly new cult. We are reminded that the exclusiveness of the Jewish and Christian God is in terms of the surrounding societies of the ancient Mediterranean world very peculiar. Most ancient peoples were happy to accept a new god or goddess, provided the proper rituals were observed, and to fit them into their own pantheon. We have several records of the Romans actually importing formally a new god, and on a specific date, 204 BC, the great mother was imported to Rome with great hoopla and given a temple and all put a date on the calendar and so on. Roman historians often tell us in a certain named year, a certain new deity was officially invited to Rome, promised cult and honours, and received with a temple. That is part of the difficulty which classical culture had with the new Christian religion. This might be an interesting new god. Some of them said, tell us more, tell us more about that. But why shouldn't he simply settle down alongside all the others? Unfortunately, Christianity, it turned out, was not and would not be like that. It's a zero-sum game. Especially we find in Asia Minor evidence of the worship of the Great Mother. The Greeks, a patriarchal Indo-European people, had no goddess really comparable with this terrific figure, whom presumably they found already in place when they entered Greece from the north. In later antiquity, though, Sibylle or Kibebe, her cult was widely adopted, the Magna Mater, the great mother, the mother of the gods, with her festival in Rome called the Megalesia, great mother, and so on. But her self-castrated attendants, her galley, were not pucker Romans, to whom it was indeed forbidden by law to become a gallus, nor would many Greeks submit to the operation which produced the eunuch priests of that formidable divinity. They were typically aliens, Levantines, coming into the classical world from the east. Their picturesque processions and outlandish ceremonies were regarded by the imperial people of Rome, it seems, as they were by the Greeks too, with an unstable mixture of awe and contempt. Some educated citizens became devotees of such cults. The golden ass of Apuleius, as well as some 
deliciously lubricious episodes, gives a remarkable picture of the life and religion of such fringe people, dropouts and crazies, roaming about the Roman Empire and living as best they could, but enjoying a close and special relationship with their goddess. So much for religion. Now for a very little history. Quote, in the pre-industrial age, Anatolia was the chief powerhouse of the Levant. That means the source of manpower, especially of soldiers. And it was the loss of that area, central Anatolia, to the Muslims, which doomed Christian Byzantium, which could no longer find the soldiers to fight for it. In the early classical period, the 7th and 6th centuries before Christ, there were imposing kingdoms of Phrygia and Lydia, especially Lydia, a byword for wealth to the peoples of poorer Greece. It was awash with gold. We talk of Midas' golden touch. We say, as rich as Croesus, the Lydian kings, who so impressed Greeks in the 7th and 6th centuries BC, and whose great offerings to Apollo at his shrine of, in Delphi, in gold, astonished them for generations. All gone now, needless to say. Yes, they had the Texas of the ancient world. Why were they given? These offerings were there to impress and to conciliate the Greeks, not least because Lydian kings wanted to recruit Greeks as mercenary soldiers. The poet Alcaeus' brother went off and did a bit of time serving in that way. Didn't come back as rich as he hoped, as so often happens. That indicates Lydian-Greek contacts, as do the poems of Sappho. For Sappho, Lydia is the source of fashionable frocks and hats and husbands and high-paying employers of Greek mercenaries. But suddenly, Lydia went down before Cyrus the Mede, 546 BC. The suddenness and completeness of their defeat and conquest astonished Hellas, which had to invent myths to explain it. The Delphic Oracle had backed Croesus to win. He was much grander than anybody else they knew, seeing his enormous offerings and hasty backtracking in several versions ensued. He had misinterpreted the Oracle. He was hubristic. He was paying for the sin of an ancestor or something. All of that shows how extensively it was debated and how hard Delphi had to work. Croesus, his magnificence and his fall are made symbolic of oriental opulence come fragility of a, the failure of a despot to understand, and of the inevitable comeuppance which would descend on him from heaven. The great historian Herodotus develops this at length as a spectacular example of the relations of human life and the divine, and also of East and West. It was fortunate for Hellas, at a crucial point in Greek development, that the Hellenophile king Croesus of Lydia shielded them from the enormous power of Persia, allowing that vital period of Hellenic growth, the end of the 6th century. Persia finally reaches the sea about 520, taking on the cities of Ionia, but when the king invaded Hellas in 490, the Hellenes were ready for him. Just. Croesus was not the only victim of the Persian invasion and conquest of Lydia. The people of Xanthos, in the region of Lycia, not far away, burned their city and their families, and then the men swore to die, marched out, and all died fighting in battle, according to Herodotus, the whole lot of them. Lycia was largely freed from the Persians by the Athenians in the middle of the 5th century. Now, Lycians, quite interesting people, right down in the south of Asia Minor, surprisingly prominent in Homer, considering that Troy is up in the, as we geographers say, top left-hand corner of Asia Minor. Uh, far from home, they are the Trojans' main allies. Their chiefs, 
The Galant and Tragic Glaucus and Sarpedon are both killed in Book 16, though Sarpedon is the dear son of Father Zeus himself, who sheds bloody rain to mourn his death. It appears that what we have here is a transposition to Troy, in the northwest corner, of fighting which originally took place between men of Rhodes and their mainland neighbours, the Lycians, far away in the south, transferred here as the Tro Troy story became dominant, magnetic and interesting. We may compare the way in which Sir Tristram, originally quite separate from the Arthurian cycle, was eventually attracted into it, becoming a knight, though a rather unusual one, of the round table. The great local Lycian myth is the fire-breathing Chimaira, doubtless associated with volcanic activity. He was killed by Bellerophon, mounted on Pegasus the winged horse. Bellerophon also fought the Amazons, warrior women, that dreadful fantasy, the opposite of the Greek polis, a haunting nightmare. Don't look for them in the real world. They was looking to say, where do we find real Amazons? They're in the mind. Uh, they're part of the alarming and un-Greek world where everything was possible in the East. The Lycians had their own language. We have a number of inscriptions written in a script related to Greek, but they went over to Greek itself about 300 BC. Names and descent in Lycia are matrilineal, through the mother. That's remarked on by Herodotus as a great oddity. Let me emphasize for a moment that matrilineal descent is not the same thing as matriarchy. Matrilineal descents are quite common in the world. You observe birth, there's no doubt that this is the child of this mother. Who the father was is, of course, a matter for speculation. But women actually in power is a rather different thing. In the 5th century, there was a Lycian revival with increasing Hellenism, visible in sculpture. Greek gods, Greek heroes and myths dominate Lycian art, and realism comes in. What we have, of course, is sculpture. Painting is lost but we can see the impact of Greek art and Greek religion. In the British Museum, the Tomb of the Harpies, early 5th century, and the Nereid Monument, end of the 5th century, both well worth seeing, if anyone hasn't been to the British Museum, to see those remarkable things, which have Greek-style sculptures on buildings which are radically not Greek. That is to say, people have seen Greek sculptures and been impressed by them and started making them themselves for their own different purposes. In Lycia, there are remarkable rock tombs. That's not a Hellenic custom. Some of them decorated with carvings and columns, like little Greek temples. There, apparently, the dead continued to be conscious and to receive offerings. That is, in there, it's kind of house for the dead person. There are also Greek-style theatres, a mark of some real Hellenization. People say, this theatre, these plays you talk about, it sounds interesting. How do you do it? First thing, you have to have a great big theatre. Uh, and it's an example of the general phenomenon of the impressive and intimidating impact of Greek art and Greek literature on other cultures. But most of the buildings in that part of the world got destroyed by the frequent earthquakes. Then in the 7th century and the 8th century, the Persians invaded and conquered Anatolia and brought in what is for us a dark age. In the 19th century, you'll be pleased to hear the Brits got there and removed many fallen antiquities, and that's when the Harpy Tomb and the Nereid Monument came to the British Museum, where they were much happier. <laughs> Another interesting people in present-day Turkey were the Galatians. Ga Galatai, Galatians, is simply the Greek for Gauls. They're the same people, in some sense, as the people in France. In 278 BC, BC there's a big Gallic invasion of Greece and of Asia Minor, 
the Greeks had originally been invited them into Asia Minor as mercenaries, very foolishly. But as Kipling says, once you've paid the Dane girl, you never get rid of the Dane or the Gaul in this case. And there was fighting with them all through the 270s. The finally, a big victory in 269, and the Gauls were driven east to settle in what became Galatia. We just had to give up and say, well, that's Gaul country. And St. Paul writes to them the letter to the Galatians. Contact with the classical world gradually led these Gauls to settle down with more formal institutions and become more respectably classical than the long-haired and wild, woolly characters in what we now call France. The Galatians were Celts. They had a quasi-feudal society with no cities, based on war leaders and on lavish rewards and feasting to henchmen. That is to say, you were given the top cut at dividing up the roast boar, and that marked you out as the person in top favour. It's the society which we see reflected in Beowulf and in those Germanic songs about the Volsungs. Warfare was constant and normal. So too was quarrelling, and quarrelling to the death. And these men often went abroad to serve as mercenaries for other people. The Gauls of Galatia retained some of their original ways, but became partly Hellenized. Still, however, they held their solemn meetings, not in a city, but in sacred groves. Great feature of Gallic and Druidic religion. The grove is the opposite of the classical way, which means stonework, pillars, statues, carving. Of course, originally the column is a stylized tree, but we don't really be conscious of that. The kingdom of Pergamum in the late 3rd and 2nd century BC, always siding with Rome against the other Greek states, fought the Gauls in big battles. After 133, the area fell increasingly into the power of Rome, largely through debt. People borrowed money and finished up enslaved. Then came Roman rule. Pompey the Great, after the defeat of Mithridates in 63 BC, reorganized the whole area and strengthened pro-Roman rulers. In 43 BC, 20 years later, in the Roman civil war between the assassins of Caesar and his heirs, the people of Xanthos set fire to their city and burned themselves and their city totally, Brutus looking on helplessly, apparently. The Romans carved up Turkey into four provinces. Under Roman rule, the relations of a governor with the local aristocracy were very important. He depended on them for a lot of administrative and military support, and also for not being prosecuted for afterwards for bribery and extortion. So you had to spread it around a bit among the upper class. Outside the provinces proper, the inaccessible areas might be entrusted to local grandees who could be given the title of king and ally of the Roman people. We see all this in the letters of the younger Pliny and other second century sources. And as a British historian writes, the provinces were governed in a determinedly ad hoc manner drawing parallels with the Brits in India before 1850, governing through native princes. But in, after about AD 200, barbarian pressure forced more militarization and more positive government. The High Roman Empire. I'll end with the speech made by a Greek in the 160s AD. The century made a eulogy of Rome. When were there ever so many cities, both in land and on the coast? When have they ever been so excellently equipped with everything? Did a man who lived in the past ever travel across country as we do, counting the cities by the days he has traveled, and sometimes riding through two or even three cities on the same day, as if he were passing only through one? 
Now, under your leadership, the emperor, all the Greek cities are rising up and the monuments dedicated in them and all their embellishments and their comforts redound to your honor, like beautiful suburbs or garden cities. Coast and interior alike are filled with cities, some newly founded, others increased under you and by you. This is in the good bit of the second century AD before it all starts going downhill. The coasts of Turkey show us in many places, large and small, hilly and flat, what was the Greek idea of a city. Pausanias, who is a geographer, writes in the second century AD of a remote dump in Phocis, Panopeus, if you can call it a city, when it has no public buildings, no gymnasium, no theatre, and no marketplace, when it has no fountain with running water, and when the inhabitants live on the edge of a torrent in hovels like mountain refuges. So, what should a city possess? Monumental public buildings, gymnasium, fortifications, wall, towers and gates, temples and altars and sanctuaries, assembly buildings, the Prutaneon, where the Senate met, the Buluteria, bigger place, basilicas for public meetings, and courtrooms, gymnasiums, theatres, music halls, libraries, a water supply, providing both aqueducts, bathhouses and fountains, and also prestige constructions, arches and colonnades and statues, the tombs of local heroes, monuments put up to emperors and benefactors. It's very much a society under the empire where local grandees are under pressure to devote money to embellishing and enriching their cities, and we have lots and lots of inscriptions about this and remarkable accounts of rich men being publicly pressed and everybody forming up and demanding that they should repair the aqueduct, mend the bridge, and so on. Say, well, look, I, I'm too hard up this year. I'll do it next year, but I can't do it now. So a quite interesting uh, form of taxation. The grandeur of the public buildings and the public spaces compensated for the poverty of citizens' private houses. A citizen spent much time out of his house. That means, of course, men, not so much women as the effect of climate on Mediterranean life. But uh, you're largely out of the house, but you try and keep out of the sun at midday unless you are a mad dog or an Englishman. And at midday, there's no better place to be than on one of our excellent Turkish boats. <laughs>